As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss the strip teaser. The Saturday Night Hooker and Cole Castile. What? <laughs> what has happened, Jed? I love it. New intro, bro. I love that. And we sometimes do discuss those things. Sometimes we got a lot of stuff to discuss, but sometimes it are those, it's those things. So I love that. Sometimes you got to change it up a little bit. On this week's episode, we discuss the greatness of not only my partner, Big Jed, but my partner, John Morgan's getting it done behind the wheel off the bottom. Yeah. Bottom ball explosion less than a week away. We talk about some very special, very memorable, and last wins in Houston. And I may or may not crown a 2022 NHRA world champion and a 2022 NHRA division championship. Yeah, it's April. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you, you're way too early is on point. Uh, a lot of people to discuss there, a lot of great performances early and some of them setting themselves up for a great run at a championship this year. We're going to talk plenty of NHRA racing. If you like the NHRA breakdown, Luke's got some great stuff this week on that. And It's we're over. Gonna talk, <laughs> we're going to talk about a huge bracket race, woman promoted bracket race that was a major success in the state of texas and uh i'm you know i'm really looking forward to talking about all this luke this is uh this is sportsman drag racing at its best we got nhra and bracket racing and a bunch of it 
all that and more and chicken. But first, P. Jizzle for Rizzle. All right, Jed, we've got a pretty big weekend in the rear view to cover a little bit of big dollar bracket racing, a pretty full slate of NHRA competition, both on the national event level and on the divisional level. And I think that's where we'll start today. It was the final NHRA national event at the fabled Houston Raceway Park. I think it's still called Houston Raceway Park. Um, but that's the last one. No, no more national events. It went out in style. A lot of, uh, a lot of Houston regulars getting a win that had to be really special for them. Yeah, Luke, it looked like, uh, you know, a pretty emotional event and, and I can only imagine, uh, still such a, a really nice looking place, a, a great racing facility. And for that to be home to so many, not just so many racers, but so many legendary figures in the sport i mean really truly a, a ton of championship legendary drag racers call that facility home and for this to be the last one you know you you have seen this happen to atlanta and now you're seeing it happen here um really tough deal i'm sure hard to take hard to understand but you know that's the way of the world these days and these facilities are falling by the wayside and going to uh to landowners that want the properties and all those things so i hate it for those racers but a lot of them really wrapped it up in style luke it was a it was a cool event to see so many local homegrown racers get that final trophy there at the houston national event yeah when we think about south texas you know obviously on a professional level i think Erica Anders is the first name that comes to mind. And I thought it was fitting that, that she kind of closed out the facility with the pro stock win, but on the, on the Lucas oil series level, I don't know about you, Jed, when I think Houston, I think of the Emmons family. Almost definitely. And you know, that's a, that's a talented family with many, many win lights there at HRP or Royal purple or whatever it's gone by over the years. Uh, but uh, that family wrapped it up in style as well, Luke. That was that was cool to see the Emmons family step up and, and get their share of the winning stock at the final event that they'll see at that facility. Yeah, it seems fitting. Um, not only did one Emmons win, two Emmons win, one, nearly three, <laughs> and they only really run two classes. Um, <laughs> so reigning national champion, stock eliminator national champion, Jerry Emmons, uh, wins the stock title at Houston for the second consecutive year. Uh, I believe it was his sixth total win, national event win at that facility. Meanwhile, his older brother Speedy wins super stock for the second consecutive year. Yeah, they did this a year ago. They doubled yeah, up very cool. Houston, which actually had to be finished at Dallas last fall. They come back, same cars, same classes, repeat the feat. So not only did the Emmons family double at the last Houston national event, they doubled at the last two. Um, and just to add icing to the cake, young Landon Emmons advanced to the final round in the advanced junior dragster class. They almost swept everything that they ran. They came one win light away, Landon runnered up to, uh, to one of the Harabina uh, boys in the final. Pretty special. I can only imagine how special a weekend that is for the Emmons family knowing how much Houston area racing 
means to that family. And, and to be completely honest, the flip is true. The, the opposite is true as well. Like that family means a lot to Houston area racing, but I know HRP specifically was uh, a proving ground for all of those guys in their youth and has been a big, big part of their lives over the last, you know, however, what, 30 plus years that that, that facility has been in existence for them to close it out that way. Certainly special for the Emmons family and from the outside, like seems like a fitting way to, to close down that facility. It really does. And you, you mentioned Eric Anders uh, getting her final win there in pro stock as well. And an all female uh, pro stock final, which was pretty cool. I don't know if you got to see much of that Luke on uh, Fox, but that was a, a really neat thing. And for Erica to take some of her airtime and mention the, the Emmons boys and uh, some of the other winners there in the sportsman categories, I thought was really cool as well. And certainly for our friends, the Emmons family, to, to go out in style back-to-back years in two classes, um, you know, I, I couldn't imagine a better ending for them when they shut the gate there at Houston. So uh, just huge congrats to them. Certainly young Landon getting the runner up in advance. Junior Dragster just one win light away from just really tearing the place up with Emmons wins. But nonetheless, um, that that was special to make the final round, I'm sure. So a big, huge congrats to the Emmons family and and all of the people that, that we're about to talk about, some more Houston, uh, some local talent there. The Emmons. They're not at the Emmons. It's the Emmons. The Emmons pretty good. The Emmons pretty good. Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> Another a big win there specific to the, the Houston area locals. How about Michael Holcomb? Uh, another local Houston racer. Uh, I met Michael for the first time at a junior dragster race in Houston when we were both racing juniors, right? That's how long he's been going to that facility. He claimed his first national event victory at the final national event at Houston. Like that in and of itself seems like a storybook scenario, but it gets better because not only did he claim his first national event win at the last event at HRP, he had to defeat the reigning two-time back-to-back reigning NHRA Supercomp world champion in the final to do that. That's Christopher Dodd, obviously. And it's not like Christopher made a bad run. The reigning two-time national champ, 15 total in the final. Not good enough. Michael Holcomb's last run down Houston Raceway Park, eight total in a national event final. That is a moment that he will never forget. No, I, you know, obviously winning that race and again, shutting the doors on HRP has to be extremely special. And, you know, you, you're the, you know, you're the last super comp winner that'll ever uh, stage there, but you do it over the reigning champ. That's pretty special, extra special, if you will. And then the, the reigning champ lays down 15 total, which is typically going to be a lap that gets the beacon in your lane and it, does it and you cut that in half basically and put eight total on them i, I couldn't imagine a, a more storybook ending there for for michael holcomb so i'm sure the the grin is still on his face as it should be a, a huge huge performance there and a, a great win for him yeah nothing's gonna gonna top this probably ever for if you're michael holcomb but it's just the latest in what is what is he's stacking up a heck of a season. I mean, he's only been to, we'll, we'll kind of go into, into detail, like a way too early championship contenders, 
but he is right there in the mix in Supercomp. I think he's been to four events. He's got two semis and now this win. So uh, not a flash in the pan by any means for Mr. Holcomb. And he's also won at least one of the regular bracket events to kind of close out the season at Houston as well. So that was no shock, but at the same time, definitely a special moment. So we zoom out a little bit from this, Jed, and you mentioned it earlier. This is the last event at Houston. A year ago, we saw the last event in Atlanta. Less than a year from now, uh, the racetrack in Phoenix will hold its last NHRA national event. And as you mentioned, uh, sign of the times, like there's my understanding of the details of each of those scenarios is, is unique to each of those facilities. But I think it's fair to say that across the board, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush um, and I don't want to, maybe it's not the majority, but certainly a significant percentage of racing facilities at this day and age are worth more as non racetracks than they are as racetracks. Um, and I think while that may hold true in a variety of, of uh, venues, I think inherently it holds more true for high population areas, which are typically your hosts to national events, right? For any variety of reasons. What, like, I don't know that this, this doesn't necessarily affect I-57 drag strip. I assume it doesn't necessarily impact Lasseter Mountain dragway, but there are pockets of the country and certainly in these, in these higher population areas where this has gotta be a, a real dilemma for a racetrack owner because I would think by and large with few exceptions, if you're going to put yourself through the, the painstaking task of either um, starting or simply running a drag racing facility, I don't think anyone su would subject themselves to that pain and work if you didn't love drag racing. So I, I think that's where the majority of, of track owners fall and, and come from. But at some point, like it's also a business. And when the opportunity to, to sell out so lucratively comes along, I would think it's it's got to be difficult to pass up. And for those so rooted in in uh, in racing, almost a bit of a, a moral dilemma. We're seeing more and more of this. Big Jed, what's your what's your take? Well, my take is that uh, a lot of people will want to at least get their finger close to the panic button because these are major facilities that are shutting down uh, iconic um, uh, facilities in drag racing that are closing and making way for corporate America, for retail America, and so on and so forth. But you think about these four that you just named in particular, Luke, what they have in common. They are in major, major U.S. cities where real estate is at an all-time high. It's at an all-time high everywhere. But you think of what real estate is worth in the general area of these cities and what it takes to run a drag strip and what you need on a semi-weekly basis just to keep the lights on and then you get your one or two huge events one being NHRA maybe two NHRA events and try to make everything work from a yearly payroll and yearly expense number off of that it's just business it really is these these facilities are just in places that are too valuable to continue operating as a drag strip and they're not 
probably not owned by just pure drag racing or racing lovers. They're not owned by Bruton Smith that doesn't care about the value of the land. It just takes pride in owning grapes. Or, or I'd say that Joliet, obviously, but uh, they're not in areas like Bristol or, um, you know, even Vegas. It's out there on that north end of town where there's plenty of room for expansion in the city between the drag strip and the strip. So these areas just are out of room for expansion. They're in high prime real estate areas. And again, they just become way too valuable. Uh, I think I, I know I saw an article recently about the Houston owners and that they never intended to shut the facility down, Luke, that their plan was to continue operating as a drag strip for a long time for the foreseeable future but basically said they were made an offer they couldn't turn down. And I can only imagine what that looks like, how many millions, tens of millions that looks like. So you can't blame them. And I'm 100% with you. This is not the end of drag racing. The I-57 drag strips, the Laster Mountains, Holiday Beaches where I race, these facilities are going to continue to, to keep moving forward and continue to race for decades to come. So nobody hit the panic button. This is just business, and I, you know, as much as I love drag racing, I don't think I would feel any different if somebody slid me that number across the table or through my through my email and said, "Here's how many tens of millions I will offer for this property," and uh, you walk away uh, probably tripling or quadrupling your money, whatever you've got invested when it's all said and done. I think we all would probably make the same business decision that these facilities are making. You know, it's hard to argue that. And, and it just, when we look at, and I agree with you that drag racing at its core, obviously we're not going anywhere. With that said, like there's gotta be some trickle down impact. You know, we would lose three, somewhere between three and four facilities off the NHRA national event tour. I don't know exactly what the future holds for Joliet. It's actually back on the division three Lucas oil series schedule for this season. So I think that that bodes well and that, you know, ultimately a national event would return to that facility, but I have zero inside information to that. Um, but when you zoom out a little bit from that, when is the last time that we added a, a national event style facility and I mean, I, I guess Epping, New Hampshire would be the, the last um, um, incident of, of that happening, instance of that happening. And that's a, a facility that's been there for, for decades that had been built up enough. And I, I would assume the market around it, you know, built up to the point that, that they felt like a national event could be successful there. Outside of that, like, I think it's been over a decade since we had a, a, a new national event facility. And to that point in this, in this market that you speak of, like, I think it, it would be crazy. At the very least, it would be a very difficult sell to convince anyone to construct a new facility in a major metropolitan market, given the price of real estate, and try to make that business model float. So I think that more so, or as much so as the losing of tracks at that level is probably as big a concern as any to NHRA, because you can water this down as much as you want. But if, it, if this turns into three events at Indy and three events at Gainesville and, you know, there's six race tracks. I, I don't know that, I don't know that that supports the infrastructure of the, of the sport at that level. And I think while that doesn't impact us directly immediately, I, I think 
it would be inevitable that that would trickle down to, to our level of racing to some extent. So is this a concern? Yeah. Um, but is there any, any workaround? I, I don't, I don't really see it at this point. Like I, I feel like everything's cyclical and, and something will, will catalyze growth again, but right now I don't want to predict doom by any means, but we're definitely on a, on a downward swing. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that is something that it gets discussed every week among racers, how racing has changed from the, the quote unquote good old days. But, you know, there's been a lot of changes for the good too. You know, we're, we're racing for life-changing money. You have one good day at the drag strip anymore and you pay your house off. So, um, there's, there's a lot of good changes that's happened in racing, but it is definitely more challenging for uh, facilities to stay open with their costs rising. And, you know, you go on a Saturday night and you're racing for a thousand to $1,500, same way we were 20 years ago, racing for the same thing. We paid $30 then you pay 60, $70 now and uh, maybe a hundred. So uh, everybody's cost has risen and not much more from the the local weekly programs is happening for the winners but reality is you're not racing locally for the money i mean we're just racing for the love of the sport and for uh, uh you know as minimal investment as we can saturday night style racing so uh, racing is definitely on the decline as far as car counts and participation and what it takes to to get there each week but you know i don't know anything that isn't it you know it costs me more to go to work every day it costs me more to go out and get a hamburger a gallon of milk so that's just life and inflation and reality but i, I still believe the sport is plenty healthy enough that it will continue on and give us the joy that it has given us you know when these facilities shut down and they are your home certainly creates a little more of a challenge to, to find the next facility. Where is it? How close is it? And how much do I love this that I want to, to, you know, drive a little farther or whatever every week. But, you know, for the most part, the people that want to race are continuing to race. And, uh, and I still think there's a fair amount of people getting in the sport or back in the sport. So, um, while it's not growing in huge numbers by any means from a participation standpoint, I still believe that it's, it's a very, very healthy sport. And, uh, you know, you look at the event that you just come from like the spring playing million Luke, and you see that kind of participation. Do I think the sport could turn into something one day where people go half a dozen times a year and race huge purses and only, and, they don't go on Saturday night. Yeah, because a lot of these guys go in 440s and 450s and these national event style tracks are shutting down and there's, you know, maybe your local track don't hold that. Uh, I race at some places you don't want to go that fast. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's there's a lot of change in our sport and it's debatable about what you consider good and bad for the sport. But for the most part, I think it's still a very, very healthy style of racing and we'll all get to enjoy it for a long time to come in addition to the nhra national event tour making its way to houston there's also a pair of divisional events 
last weekend, one in Division One at ATCO, another Division Two down in Reynolds, Georgia. Uh, I'm not going to go through bit by bit, result by result, and name every winner from those events. Just a couple of things uh, stood out from me. Actually, one thing stood out for, to me from each of those events. First off, in Reynolds, Vince Hoda gets the win in Top Sportsman. That's his second win of the season. Do you hear that, Dom Azir? That's Vince Hoda. It's not Here he comes. Make, he's going to make this interesting. Hoda, a top 10 finisher a year ago. I believe he was the Division Four champion. Uh, now two divisional wins to his credit this season, plus uh, a pair of semifinal finishes as well. So while Dom Mazir is, uh, has, has looked as strong as anyone, um, it's not. Uh, we're not ready to just hand over the crown just yet. Uh, Vince Hoda off to a great start there. With the win at Reynolds, uh, up in Division One, the uh, that was the first race for Division One and the first race for I would say the vast majority of competitors on the ground. So not much to uh, to glean from that just yet from a points earning perspective. Uh, the notice the most notable result for me was uh, one Sean Frick got the win in Super Street and nearly doubled, also advanced to the semifinal at Super Comp before he lost to Chicken. That's right, Brian Balducci, who went on to win Super Comp. So congrats to Sean and to Brian. Yeah, a couple of guys very familiar with one another for sure. Have uh, been racing each other for quite some time and uh, really cool to see them there at ATCO uh, scoring big. Certainly Vince Hoda with the top sportsman uh, win. That, that's that's uh, going to be fun to watch. You know, somebody had to get up there and challenge Don real quick and real early. So that's good. But, um, you know, chicken, shout out to chicken. That's a... Uh, He's old bracket racer buddy and uh, good to see him competing in super comp and, uh, and doing quite well up there in his uh, home area. Wait, chicken one at Atco? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> When's the last time that happened? 30 minutes ago? All right. So I wanted to, I want to go through a little, uh, a little fun exercise here. If you'll, uh, if you'll indulge me, big Jed. So it's obviously as we record this, it's April 25th. It's way too early, but as much of a sports fan as you are, I know that you're familiar with like the way too early top 25 that comes out literally, you know, hours after they cut down the nets in March Madness or, uh, or after the national championship game in football. Right. So yeah, you're talking about the Alabama invitational top 25. I mean, basically in football, I mean, every year, the, uh, the off season banner. Every year, the way too early top 25's got my tide, you know, because the chances are you're going to be right if you pick them. So I don't blame people for picking them, but I, I digress. I got off track there. Sorry. What it would save and recruit 42 five stars. <laughs> yeah, he did well. I mean, Texas AM had the most five stars, but Saban really wasn't after that. He went to the transfer portal and got grown men that have been playing the game. He didn't get a bunch of 18 year old kids. He went and got grown men that's been playing the game at a high level, took those great players from other teams, and he's he's rebuilding his dynasty down there. So, you know, we're just doing it a little different way these days, Luke. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So looking into the, the NHRA Lucas Oil Series points, again, early on, and keep in mind, Division One just had their first race. Division Three hasn't started yet. Division Six hasn't started yet. So there could obviously be championship contenders by season's end that haven't even been on the racetrack yet. So I'm not, the, the list that we're going to share today is not necessarily um, all of the racers that will contend for championships, but I'm 
fairly confident in saying any name that we mentioned today is going to be in the mix at the end. And ultimately at this point in the season, that's what it's all about. So we are, I guess, to some extent, maybe making some predictions. It's way too early to do that, but there is enough of the season in, in the Southern divisions to begin to shape what this championship picture could look like. One of the, the most fun classes I think to follow going forward is going to be in Superstock and I'm not ready to call it just yet, Jed. Obviously, there's a lot of racing to be done, but it is definitely shaping up to be a two-way battle for the Superstock World Championship among two guys that are no stranger to the Superstock World Championship. We'll start with one, Greg Stanfield. Stanfield, a recent guest on our show, your reigning NHRA Superstock World Champion five-time NHRA Superstock World Champion, and he couldn't get off to much better start going for number six. To this point, Stenfield actually lost fairly early. I think he went down in round three at Houston last weekend. Prior to that, he had been to three divisional events. He was runner-up at the first one. Then he really found his stride and won the next two. All right, so that's a pretty good batting average. Been in three finals out of four events. And at this point, he's not in the lead. And he's not the favorite. The favorite right now would be Ryan McClanahan, another former NHRA Superstock world champion who, on the strength of a double up at the double divisional in Las Vegas, add into that a win at the national event in Phoenix. McClanahan has already garnered three wins in the early season and gone rounds at the other races. Like he has already put up a score that if he stopped today is probably worthy of a top 10 finish. And he's maybe halfway through a season. So it looks like, again, like I can't say it's, it's a two-way race, like racers like Ricky Decker, Joe Santangelo, who were very much in the mix for last season's title. They haven't even staged up yet this year, but it's those two have definitely cemented their claim and not saying that it's going to be a two-way race at the end, but the championship is going to go through Greg Stanfield, Ryan McClanahan. Yeah, Luke, obviously you, you never bet against Greg Stanfield, especially after he showed what he was capable of, uh, you know, re-entering the mix last year in the sportsman ranks and, and getting the championship. And he's off to a heck of a start. But that guy that you mentioned, that three-win guy, Ryan McClanahan, that dude just wins, man. I mean, he is cool under pressure. He is talented, good equipment capable of making all the races he needs to make and so on and so forth. So that is not the one they want to see off to a great start early in the season. You know, this would be different if this was somebody that is getting their first taste of this and they just got off to a good start. This is Ryan McClanahan. So this is going to be a challenge for anybody, um, you know, on the, on the chase of this championship. Um, you know, you, you do have the Justin Lambs of the world, and there are some guys that haven't started yet, like you said, that that are capable of getting off to a, a good start and making this competitive. But if that doesn't happen, Luke, then Ryan McClanahan is just going to get a get a stranglehold on this title run and be even more difficult to beat. Uh, it's it's going to be a challenge for the people to to get him to falter. Now, is it possible? Of course it is, but he just doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He really doesn't if you watch him. So this is, uh, this is going to be a challenge and 
the way too early uh, championship picture is definitely way too early to try to name a winner, but um, that guy's definitely not just a flash in the pan, as you said earlier. He's a he's got a good grip on this and going to be in the mix for sure. That's what's so intriguing about this. I mean, it's one thing for racers like Greg Stanfield and Ryan McClanahan to accumulate multiple final rounds early in the season and to tag those racers as a favorite. But I think it's fair to say that going forward, like I'm not here to say that, that Ryan McClanahan is going to go win three more races, although that wouldn't surprise me, or that Greg Stanfield is going to be in three more finals, although that would be a shock to no one. But I am very confident in saying here as we record, like Ryan McClanahan and Greg Stanfield aren't going to go out there and shoot their foot. Like they're not going to beat themselves. You will have to beat them. And that's not an easy thing to do. In my, in my Western travels, I heard an awesome story about the McClanahans. I have no idea if it's true, but I want it to be. So I'm going to share it here. So if you've ever been around Ryan and his father, Brian, and just kind of, I don't know them that well, but just watching how they operate, like they're very much unified. Like it's a very efficient program, right? Right. You just watch it's, it's, there's a seriousness to them, but there's, there's cohesion there, right? That they're, they're, they're moving in lockstep. So the story that I heard is when Ryan was graduating out of the junior dragster ranks. And if, if memory serves, I think he had a tremendous junior dragster career. But the last time that they went to the uh, like Western Conference Finals, I think, it, you know, I think that's Denver, wherever it was at that time, right? And Jed, you know, as well as I do, the, the scene on the junior dragster starting line and how how overbearing all of us are as parents slash crew chiefs and like getting the idol just right and setting the clutch. And like, I mean, if you've been to a junior dragster race, like it is, it is like the, the human version of a rain delay watching the races. Like it takes a long time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently, and again, I don't know if this is true. I want it to be true really bad. The last time that they went to said conference finals, Brian would start the car for Ryan, kick the tire, like behind the water box and be like, good luck. Turn around, walk away. Ryan was on his own. Wow. And I love it. I, I hope that's true. I think they said Ryan made it to the semifinals too. So, but yeah, that's like perfect. Here you go. <laughs> good luck. Kid. Get out of here. You got this. Yeah. I don't know how in the world that worked, but. Obviously Whatever. it worked all right. Maybe it, maybe it tells the rest of us we're a touch overkill on the <laughs> yeah, so. That's, racing goals there. I want to get to that point with my son. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm guilty as charged. I do. Yeah. As am I, I do, I do distinctly remember now, granted it was a little bit different time. My junior dragster 25, whoo, almost 30 years ago, not the technological marvel that our cars are today, but I do distinctly remember telling my father that if he could figure out a way to give me a starter button and a reverser, he could just get out the way. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> I mean, now they're the, the kids racing them have beards and you know, um, mustaches and stuff, so that's might as well just put a starter in it and just let them do their own thing. Most of them have batteries anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, most of them do. All right, so we said Superstock's a two-way race. Stock's not. Uh, I, it's April 25th. Can I call it? Absolutely. Call it? Absolutely. Sorry to the Division One racers, the Division Three racers, the Division Six racers who have lost without staging. It's over. 
<laughs> Already. Write it down. Brad Burton is your 2022 NHRA Stock Eliminator World Champion. Congrats to Brad on championship number three. Congrats to the Burton family. Okay, that, that might be a touch premature, but I'm going to go out on a limb. For much of the same reasons that I, that I, I listed with Greg Stanfield and with Ryan McClanahan, Brad Burton has done a little wrong to start his season. Uh, he's won two races. He's lost in the semifinals of two races. He did show a little bit of a human streak at the, uh, at the Las Vegas double divisional. I believe he lost third round in both, both races. Um, but he's got a score right now. Like if you just take the average of the six races, and if he was to continue that over two more races, he's got a score that would typically win the world championship. And he's got eight more races at which to try to improve that. So that in and of itself makes him a favorite. And then you just tack on the fact that he's Brad freaking Burton. And similar to what I said about Sandfield, similar to what I said um, <clears throat> about McClanahan, Brad's not going to beat himself. Like he's going to go make solid runs. I fully expect he'll win another race or two or three. And I, I think this thing's going to be completely out of reach by like the month of August. I, I, there are a lot of talented racers in stock eliminator. Somebody could make a run, but I think Burton's going to put up just a massive score. And I expect that he'll be your national champion. Yeah, it'd be hard to bet against him at this point, Luke, with the start that he's off to, knowing how many races he has left to to improve where he didn't perform at the level he's accustomed to. So um, really good pick there, uh, Brad Burton. Very talented. And as I've said it a couple of times. It wasn't a pick. It was a statement. <laughs> yeah, good point. As I've said on the show a couple of times, Brad Burton, it's like, it's like he's got a crystal ball and he knows what it's going to take to beat you. And that's just all he does. So if 40 and dead on is going to beat you, that's what he'll be. If he's racing Ryan Harum and, or, or excuse me, Ryan Mangus, and he needs to be 11 and dead too, that's what he's going to be. So it's, it's pretty incredible how he just knows where he needs to be. And he just goes there. And that guy's, you can't break him. He's, He's just really calm and cool and talented. And again, another guy with great equipment. So uh, I think he's going to claim division six as well. Um, they hadn't even started. So I'm sure his uh, division six opponents are loving seeing him already off to a very fast start. And then here he's going to he be showing actually up. claiming division six. Like he may have clinched the championship and division six hasn't had a race. Yeah, yeah I'm sure they're I'm sure they're loving that. But uh, nonetheless, I think he uh, – a great statement. I think he is uh, going to be your odds-on favorite to get it done. Yeah, I think that's fair at this point. Now, as we transition into Super Comp, this is the class right now, which obviously every year, like the level of parity in that class in particular is – I think deeper than any category in NHRA competition. So it comes as no surprise that that looks a little bit more wide open. With that said, like what Jim Glenn has done to this point is absolutely championship worthy. It's actually about on par with what Brad Burton's done. Um, he was in the final round of the first two national events. He won Pomona, he runnered up Phoenix. Since then, he has not made it back to a final round, but he has just steadily accumulated points on the divisional level quarterfinal finish, fourth round, quarterfinal finish, to the point that it's stacking up to where he's going to have a massive score that's going to be difficult to beat. I 
think, I don't know if it's fair at this point in the season to say that Jim Glad is the odds on favorite in Supercomp, but I do think it's fair to say that the road to the championship goes through him. Um, he's accumulated a great score early, similar, uh, if our, if our predictions are correct, similar to Brad Burton and that he'll be doing the bulk of his racing throughout the summer in division six, um, which nothing against the, the division six racers, but I think by and large, like that's an area where he should be able to accumulate some more points. Like I would expect to see a racer of Jim, Jim Glenn's caliber rack up another divisional event when somewhere along the way in D6, um, and if that's the case, like it's going to be really difficult to catch him. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Allison McCone and how she's just started the season on fire. She's very much within striking distance. Holden Larice has been in two final rounds out of, I think he's only been to four or five events. So he's within striking distance. Oh, by the way, how is it that we've gotten four names deep in Supercomp and we've yet to mention the reigning back-to-back national champion, one Christopher Dodd? Christopher got a late start to his season. He's only been to two races, but you know what he did at those two races, Big Jed? What's that, Luke? He made two finals. <laughs> so he did what Christopher Dodd does. He did what Christopher Dodd does. Um, runner up in both of those races, but obviously accumulating massive points and obviously a guy that is no stranger to doing what it takes. So Michael Holcomb, who we mentioned earlier, putting together a great score, uh, buoyed by that Houston win over Christopher Dodd. Dan Foley, another Texas area racer who now has been to three national events. His worst national event claim is a semi. He's got win runner up semi. Plus I think he went four or five rounds at the one points meet he's been to. So as strong an early season as Jim Glenn has had, and as much as in normal years, you would kind of think he's the runaway. There have been numerous racers in Supercomp that have really staked their claim to a title run early on in the season. And at least right now, this looks like the most intriguing race going forward because not only are so many racers having tremendous success early on, once again, they're all really capable. And Supercomp is a class that just lends itself to, there's going to be another one, two, three names that make a run like this, like this, this five, six wide race is probably going to turn into eight or 10, just like it was a year ago. Yeah. That class sees runs every year, Luke. Uh, there's still uh, names that seemingly are in contention every year that, that aren't on this little short list. Jim Glenn, obviously in great position and off to a great start, but I'm nowhere close to, uh, to trying to even think about naming a, a champion in super comp category, as you mentioned, very, very competitive. It's a, it's a streaky class where you just get on a roll and get comfortable in the car and your equipment working for you makes a huge difference. And, you know, knowing what you're holding and how to get rid of it. And this just a, what I mean, much like a lot of classes, but this is just one of those classes where, People get in a groove and those two or three thou finish lines fall their way and you just never really know how it's going to end up. So nowhere close on that one. We're still we're still months away from being able to decide who's going to uh, be in great position towards the end of the year in Supercomp. So we'll say this about Jim Glenn, Big Jed. I I say this. I, I don't. I don't, I'm not ready at this point to, to just make the statement 
that Jim Glenn is your super comp world champion. I, I, I think that's very, very possible. I will say, and I don't know Jim all that well, I'm rooting for him. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Like we've got outside of our elite members, which some of the names I just mentioned, Christopher Dodd, Michael Holcomb, Dan Foley. Um, that's, barring something like that, where I'm, where I'm involved to some extent in, in the, uh, you know, my, my heart's in it. I watched Jim Glenn from a distance. Now, obviously he was on the same Western swing that I was. I think he was at every race that we went to. And again, outside of like waving, I, I, I didn't really have conversations with Jim, but I am telling you every time, seemingly every time that I rode past his trailer, Jim Glenn was working his tail off, like wheels and tires off, maintenance, changing this, changing that. Like there was not a car that got more bolts turned on it for those two months than Jim Glenn's car. And I got a ton of respect for somebody that puts in the work, especially when they're having the continued level of success that he was and is. Um, so like my heart's with that guy. Like I, I got to root for a guy that is just out there thrashing, whether he win, win, lose or draw. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, somebody that's putting that much into it, you you want them to get that much out of it. And certainly uh, a Super Comp World Championship would probably mean everything to Jim Glenn. And that's what he's battling out there every week for and, and you know, under the car and in the car. So uh, I couldn't agree more. It's It's great to see those type of people accomplish the ultimate goal. So we'll transition over to the 990 class with Super Gas. Now, we talked in Super Comp where with the exception of Christopher Dodd, we talked, we brought up a lot of new names, right? Racers that weren't necessarily in contention for last year's championship or recent year's titles. And Super Gas looks to kind of be the opposite. Like we're very early on. Nobody's necessarily run away with Super Gas, but the key contributors are like last year's top five, specifically Austin Williams, John LaBoose Jr. Now, if you're playing along at home and you've got the, the national points in front of you, those are not names in the top 10 because all the top 10 is West Coast racers that have been to five, six, seven events at this point. Neither LaBoose, who finished number three a year ago, or Austin Williams, who finished number two a year ago, have been to that many races. They've just gone deep at every race that they have been to. And they're to this point, their box scores are very, very similar. I think both Austin and John have a win, a runner-up, and a semi, and another like fourth-ish round loss at their fourth event. Um, so again, they're they're down the sheet a little ways from the racers that have been to more events, but their per event score higher than anyone. So if I had to pick favorites right now, it's those two. Um, and then you've got a handful of racers out who did compete in the races out West that have put up decent scores to this point. Um, myself included along with, with Val Torres, with Mike Boehner, PD Booth, um, Phil Unruh, a couple others, but to this point, as, as strong as those, those scores have been, I don't see like national championship type scores there. I mean, obviously the foundation is there. If any of those racers were to get hot, could certainly make a run at it. But right, what we're seeing there is you're like, those are the types of finishes that usually land you in the top 10 or contention for the top 10. What Austin and LaBouche have done this far look more like championship level scores. And they're obviously coming from two championship caliber contenders, both having done that in the past. Yeah, definitely two uh, perennial, you know, top 10, top five type racers that, that you have on the list. 
in those top positions, Luke. But, um, you know, again, another class full of talent, full of great equipment, and full of people that haven't really got their program rolling so far this year. So, um, obviously, the two that you have at the top of the list, very capable of winning and most likely will be a determining factor in the championship. But a lot of talent in that class will rise, continue to rise and, and impact the championship run for whomever ends up getting it done. So, again, no, I'm not even close to being where I would try to pick a winner in that category either. No, it's and it's Supergas will be interesting to track, too, because it's the one category that probably for the last decade plus I think it's the category that most stands out as equipment can still make a significant difference in terms of like you get into to stock eliminator or super comp would be the, the optimal. Like everybody's working with the same stuff, right? In super gas, getting uh, like a purpose built super gas car that will go down every racetrack that could get a light. Like that's half the battle. And it's not, there's a growing percentage of the field that had that over the course of the last decade, but it was a pretty big difference between the haves and the have nots and, and racers like Laboose and Austin and myself, like we're, we're the haves, right? We've had the ultimate tools for the job. Now we transition into this year and, and HRA gave us all 300s back on the tree. So what that did essentially, or at least in theory, is make super gas cars like my Vega, right? Forget my Corvette, like something like my Vega, should now be competitive in super gas. Like I can get a light. So now having that purpose-built car while still an advantage on some levels, I don't think should be near the advantage that it was a year, five, 10 years ago. Um, so it may be a bit premature to say like, hey, those guys are in a little bit different class than, than the rest of the field. But with that said, like those guys are still named Austin Williams and John LaBoost Jr. And like, we could put everybody in rental cars. I like the chances. Excellent point. Uh, I didn't even consider the three hundreds that everyone got back on the tree loop. That's a that's another point that that brings in more potential uh, competitive racers in the field, competitive rides. And real quick, what do you do in a car like yours? Do you put time in the box and still continue to leave at the at the higher RPM, or do you back that RPM down a little bit and maybe? try to help yourself get some consistency, maybe not you particularly, but what do you, what is the best approach there? I think, and, and I may be overblowing the importance of this, but I think the racer or racers that answer that question more quickly are the racers that are going to, you know, perhaps take the stage in, in November and it's something that I've been fighting with. Like initially I said, well, I had a championship program last year. Like I don't want to change anything. And I went to Pomona and I had like 60 or 70 in the delay box, which is fine. Right. There's no reason not to do that. But at the same time, my car specifically, it's more consistent when I bracket race it, leaving at a much lower RPM. It's more forgiving than when I super gas race it. So then the question becomes like, okay, well, I can make that car more dialable by bringing the launch RPM down, by taking some of that aggressiveness out of it. 
But then how much does that upset the throttle stop sequence? Because then it's not flashing the converter to, to full converter flash before the throttle stop closes. Like there's a give and take there. And I don't, at this point, uh, I'm seven races in and I've got a really good combination. I would actually say that my car today is better than it was last season. I just haven't been able to do much with it to this point, or at least that's, that's my perception, but that's still a work in progress. And like I say, I'm, I'm basically half the season in the racer that figures out the answer to the riddle that you just posed, Jed, I think is the racer that ultimately comes out on top, because I think that is the unique opportunity this year we've been we've been faced with with not necessarily a different set of rules but a, a changing dynamic and i think there is room to take advantage of that somewhere somehow whoever figures that out is probably the one that hoists the trophy yeah that was um so that just popped up in my head when you talked about that 300s and uh, totally unscripted there so that that's cool to to see that 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 question is definitely something that maybe many of the super gas competitors have not answered yet. So, uh, and how that will impact the, the championship. So good stuff. I'll, uh, maybe we can dive into that when we do finally get that winner and figure out exactly what approach they took. Top dragster, uh, still wide open in top dragster. I would say the early favorite has got to be Wayne Landry. He just won his second national event of the season. Uh, just last weekend in Houston, he's two for two in national event competition with wins at Gainesville and Houston. He's also added a divisional series runner up. So Wayne Landry off to a really hot start. Um, Jeremy Hancock, who we've talked about before on this show, he won the first two division two races of the season. Newsflash. Hancock lost last weekend, Jed. I better check the timing equipment. <laughs> he went to Reynolds. He got two more win lights. But uh, I think uh, I think it came to an end in round three after what was what's that twelve consecutive win lights in uh, in an HRA in an HRA top dragster competition that's pretty impressive there. Um, like we had talked about a few episodes ago, Hancock obviously has the tools, the experience. Uh, I think if if Jeremy told either one of us, Big Jed, hey, I'm going to make a run at the national championship, I don't know if we'd go full Brad Burton for him, but we'd say like that dude's absolutely a contender, right? A 100% a threat to win, particularly with two wins already under his belt. The the issue there is the car that Jeremy Hancock has driven to those two divisional event wins is Jeremy Hancock's bracket car, for, for lack of a better term. It's a fast bracket car. I think he's going 690s, 70s but it's not a car that's going to qualify at the majority of NHRA national events. So if he's going to make a run at a national championship, it's probably going to necessitate a borrowed ride. And as we've said before, I don't think there is any shortage of racers with 610, 620 dragsters that would feel comfortable putting Jeremy Hancock in the seat. He's very capable. It's really a question of, is that something that he wants to pursue? And, and can he establish that relationship with somebody that will provide the wheels to do it? Yeah, Luca, as these as the season progresses and these uh, big money bracket races start to overlap with the, the important events that will determine the championships in all of these categories, I think Jeremy's going to lean more to the bracket events. Uh, his wife uh, gets to compete in those big bracket races as well with her bracket dragster. So I think from a family standpoint, Jeremy's going to lean that direction. 
Don't see him chasing, although he's off to an incredible start. Don't see him chasing that championship, especially considering the, as you mentioned, the ETs that he runs and uh, how these national events are going to be very challenging for a car that runs that type of ET and, and having to borrow cars and all that. So I think uh, his, his run towards that will come to an end. And, um, you know, obviously Wayne Landry could start. Uh, as you've got in the show notes, Aaron Stanfield. Um, but that, that, again, that's a category that's going to have a lot of great competitors in it. And uh, who knows who will emerge as the champion at the end of it. But it's always fun to watch. And, and there's always Danny Nelson uh, waiting to make his five wins in a row run uh, sometime this summer. So good point. I don't know. Just that hang tight. Been to a race yet. I don't know that Anthony Bertozzi has been to a race yet. I don't believe reigning world champion Blake Peevler has been to a race yet. So a lot to be settled there, but you did mention in passing Aaron Stanfield, young Aaron. <laughs> I can't, I, 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 I'm running out of superlatives for, for Aaron Stanfield. Aaron's been to three races in top dragster, which I would have to assume is like the third, fourth, fifth priority on his agenda at this point. He's got a win. He's got a semi. He's got a quarter. I have no idea if his schedule would accommodate pursuing a national championship in top dragster. And if it did, it would be the third priority in terms of classes, obviously, behind pro stock and factory stock where he's the back-to-back national champion if that can all like work out logistically with oh by the way a newborn baby at home and a father who's pursuing a super stock national championship if that could all come to fruition where he's able to make a run at that like it is not inconceivable for us to turn the calendar to october and be talking about aaron stanfield in contention perhaps the favorite for not one, not two, but three NHRA World Championships in a single season. No, Luke, it isn't. And, you know, we, we both of us kind of breezed by that. You said that it could be fourth, fifth on his priority list. And that's that's not because it's not important. It's just because he's got so much going on. I mean, the man runs pro stock and, you know, he's, he's chasing all of that. And that's a full-time job in itself. And to think a guy has that kind of talent that he can go from all lights lit, you know, trying to get there first and, and tuning those things so fine tuned to the thousandth of a second. And, what they're trying to, to learn through fuel and all of those gearing and all those things to jump in the top dragster and ba- basically go stupid fast bracket racing in the low to mid sixes and be so good at it is truly remarkable talent. Obviously his father has it. He has it. Uh, just maybe it comes natural to some people. I don't know, but um, this guy's ultra talented and, no doubt in my mind, whatever he puts his mind to, he will be great at it and he'll be a force to be reckoned with. And, and that certainly includes top dragster. So it'll be fun to watch that play out. Well, I mean, forget, for, let's put aside for a moment, like the skill and versatility that it takes behind the wheel to do that. Now, I don't know at this point, 
how involved Aaron and Greg are in the pro stop team development. Like my assumption is that's mostly an elite deal. Although if you've got a, a resource like Aaron and Greg Stanfield at your disposal, I'm, I'm sure that they have some input. But yeah, this, sure. if, even if you exclude that from factory stock to super stock to a nitrous assisted top dragster, like just the dearth of mechanical knowledge and ingenuity to make those cars all not just go down the track, but essentially be the best possible equipment in any of those categories is pretty incredible. Yeah, it truly is. Uh, it, you know, again, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom what it takes to, to just have the, the uh, hand-eye coordination to get out of one and the other and be very competitive. Although you, you tend to think, well, this is just drag racing. It really isn't. I mean, the, what it takes adrenaline wise and getting all geared up to run a pro stock car. And again, the factory stock, these guys are going incredible speeds on nine inch tires. And then you get into this beast and everything else that he's got his hand in, uh, you know, it shows a, an amazing ability to process information in a short period of time and really just get yourself in the right mode to go out and be competitive. And he's obviously very capable of doing that regardless of what he's sitting in. In top sports, when we mentioned earlier, Vince Hoda on the heels of his divisional event win at Reynolds, he's knocking on the door for Damazir. But Damazir's sitting up there saying, you keep on knocking, but you can't come in. Damazir started off the season, back-to-back national event wins and top sportsman. Followed that up just a few weeks ago, Big Jed, with another final round appearance. He was runner-up at the Las Vegas division race. So putting together a really, really solid, solid is probably an understatement, early season run. I think it is fair to say and, and, and unquestionable to say that early on in the season, Don Mazir is your favorite and he's no stranger to the battles, right? He's been a top 10 finisher multiple times and top sportsman. Vince Hoda is the, the obvious contender at this point with two divisional event wins, also two semifinals, as I mentioned earlier. The thing, the factor working against Vince at this point is that everywhere that Don's been racing, with the exception of the national events, is obviously on the West Coast, the divisional events are six round races. Every event that Vince Hoda has been to or every event that he's gone deep in four round races and so wins at four round races are not as as beneficial points wise as wins at five or six round races so that's working against Vince and I think it speaks to the the dearth of options available to fast door car racers top sportsman racers if you will um in really any part of the country except the West Coast. Like on the West Coast, it is my understanding that the NHRA is still the only show in town. Whereas dependent on location, fast bracket racers, fast door car racers, top sportsman racers, if you will, yes, the NHRA series is an option, but so is like the Midwest Pro Mod series that Keith Haney puts on. So is the PDRA. So is the Verge Motorsports, you know, 470 heads up stuff a lot more options that, that take away a lot of cars. It really makes it for a lot of racers where NHRA is certainly not the only option and, and in many cases not the best option. And I think in those classes specifically, you're seeing car counts down. 
and, and when you combine that with the disparity in fields, there's 48 car fields on the West Coast, 32 car fields everywhere else, um, it gives a racer like Don Mazir even that much more of a, of a competitive advantage, at least on paper. Very good point, Luke. And some of those other options that you talk about for these cars are where they are the show as well. And that's, you know, let's not fool ourselves. That's important to a lot of these racers uh, because there's some ego out there. There's, there is some serious money spent and they don't like taking back seats to any categories and being told, hurry up and wait. And we don't let, we, we don't know exactly when you'll get on the racetrack track prep at these other options specifically for what they do intended to work for them and them first and foremost. So you, you combine all of that and it certainly makes the NHRA option a little less appealing for some, which a guy like Don Mazir, that that is something that's very important to him, his better option where he doesn't have these other um these other organizations to race with. It's a really good point. It puts him in a great position. So I like your reasoning there. And certainly um, I like Don. So I'm pulling for him. Yeah, it's hard not to root for Don Mazir. I will say like, if I've got a, a, I wouldn't even call it a fear, but if there's something holding me back from, you know, putting the, the Brad Burton-esque crown on Don Mazir's head here on April 25th, it would just be the logistic challenge of making enough races from where he lives. Like it's going to, to, to make the maximum number of races would require a pretty significant commitment. Um, I believe, I don't know that it's, it's even that big a, a concern on the, the national event level, seeing as Don's already got two wins. Maybe you just need one more good national. Maybe you don't even have to go to, to five. If you win three, why go to, why go to five, right? Uh, uh, the divisional level, like he'd have to make, one good trip, maybe the double divisional in Woodburn or something like that, um, which is a pretty significant undertaking. And if you're if you're competing for the national championship, which he will be, uh, most of us and most of our listeners would say like, all right, let it roll. Damas here, like where he's at in life, like I'm not going to say that winning a national championship wouldn't be awesome, right? I don't know that it's all that important to him. Like I don't think I don't think that changes who he is. I don't think he sleeps any better at night if and when he wins one. So I don't know that he, he's going to be the guy that, you know, given work and family commitments, that's just going to push all his chips in and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this, you know, three week long tour if that's what needs to be done. I don't know if Don's that guy. Well, that's a fair take on that. And I would agree wholeheartedly what, what I know of Don, we're not like best friends, but you know, we've, we've talked and chatted a little, but I would also say that this guy's business is built around True. this stuff it's good business for him and being in this business he understands how few times you really get these opportunities so i would think that would probably push don to to try to take advantage of of good positioning into points chase and i would also think that you know i mean he's got zach he's got people i was gonna say there might be some there might be some familial pressure to like, yeah uh, i was gonna say yeah i think his family and his circle would would say don you you gotta do this this is not this is not you being selfish or uh having a big ego and going out there and chasing some dream this is a great opportunity that you put yourself in position to to take advantage of so go do it and i would expect that if 
if it looks good for him with the possibility of, uh, of accomplishing that goal, although that might not have been the original intent, intent I still believe that, that Don would uh, stretch out a little bit in the rig and go places that he wouldn't normally go to try to accomplish it. Unrelated Mazir story. So a few weeks, perhaps months back, uh, I shared the story how the first delay box that I owned which I'm, I'm not quite old enough for this, but I, I bought it as a swap meet, you know, at 14, 15. The first delay box that I owned was a three-digit Mazir, right? Remember wow. this story? So in Las Vegas, Dave Mazir approaches my trailer with this contraption, let's say, that has obviously been sitting in a dark corner for many years, like it is caked with dust. And he wipes it off to show me that the three-digit Mazir delay box that I had was the updated model. What Dave presented at the racetrack was the original two-digit Mazir. Two-digit delay box. The two-digit delay box. Holy cow. Luke. We had tenths and hundredths because at that time there was no need for seconds. And we were not trying to... to to skin the cat like we are today, there was no need for thousands. We just had tens and hundreds. <laughs> that is awesome stuff. I'd like to see that. <laughs> All right. The last category I want to touch on, competition eliminator. We don't typically spend a ton of time on it, but I did want to bring it up because this shapes up to be a really interesting year in competition eliminator because the names that we have been accustomed to for lack of a better word, dominating that category, really for the better part of the last decade, don't appear to be in line to dominate that category this season. You've got Craig Bourgeois, who has been to one race thus far, had 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 tapered off a little bit last season and does not seem to be um, focused on, on the NHRA tour, at least early on for whatever reason. Um, Bruno Massel, who has stated publicly that uh, last year was, was, he's glad that he did it, but it's time to throttle back focus a little bit more on family. Uh, I don't expect to see Bruno a lot this season. I think when he comes out, he'll come out with in force as he typically does, but it does not sound like a championship run is in the cards. And then I think we're all familiar with the fact that the, the name in competition eliminator over the, the last decade, Frank Aragona has been dealing with um, personal health issues. Uh, Frank, for those of you that, that aren't aware, had been diagnosed with cancer, I believe just went through a pretty serious surgery a few weeks back. So Frank, we're thinking of you. Um, but all of that kind of opens the door for lack of a better term, like we're, we're going to likely see a new face holding the competition eliminator trophy. And again, it's, it's very early. Um, right now, Joe Mozeris uh, out West is the leader on paper. Mozeris made a run at the championship a year ago. Doug Lambeck, Greg Camplain, all off to solid, but not spectacular starts, like starts that, that could definitely set a foundation for a championship run, but nothing that you'd step back yet and say, whoo, that's the favorite, right? The best on paper right now is probably out in division two from David Eaton. Um, David's been to four events. He's got two wins and a runner up, um, has the best, you know, per event average on paper. And again, it's super early, right? Um, some of the hotbeds of competition eliminator just getting started uh, as, as one notable racer, David Billingsley, who finished second in the world to Bruno a year ago. He's batting a thousand so far. He's only been to one race. It was the Gainesville Divisional. He won it. 
Um, so not enough early on to say like, hey, that's your odds on favorite, but Billingsley is a guy that'll obviously be a contender. And if you remove Frank Aragona, Bruno Massel, and Craig Bourgeois from the mix, I tend to think your odds on favorites at that point have to be David Billingsley, maybe Greg Camplain, um, perhaps Pete Dagnolo, if he's going to make another run at competition eliminator this year. And perhaps it's a name that we haven't even touched on yet. Again, really early in comp, but I think it'll be fascinating to watch it unfold. Yeah, it's always fun to watch that unfold. Uh, Luke, I, I would be not being honest with you if I didn't tell you, I'm really more interested in seeing who wins division four and gets that hundred thousand dollar payday. But obviously that winner is going to be a, a factor in the, the overall national championship as well. I'll take, so I'll take some drama out of that for you. Your hundred thousand dollar winner is going to be Jeff Taylor. Okay. So you're, you're way too early. Uh, I guess a statement there is, is Jeff Taylor. And obviously uh, he is uh, chasing that from a little bit of distance, but that's not going to matter. It's hundred grand. He's, he's, he's going after it and he's, yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a talented guy as we, as we discussed uh, earlier in one of the shows. So, um, but I'm, I'm really looking more forward to that. And I guess when that all plays out that again, will impact the championship. So we'll see how that works out and who, uh, who positions himself to, to move on from that $100,000 payday towards a national championship. Outside of the NHRA Tour, Big Jed uh, had a handful of notable big dollar bracket races on the schedule a, last weekend. Uh, none more notable than Paige Hamlin's, um, was this the... It, Rudd, it, had a, it had a long name, Big Jed. You got the, the Rudd Racing Engine yes. six six shooter uh, shootout. I think is what it was. Showdown. Called. Showdown. Showdown. Yeah, yeah. Six shooter showdown. Yeah. Dream Raceway Park uh, in Texas, and I thought I want to spend some time on this, Big Jed. We mentioned um, Paige and her exploits in in this event, I believe, a year ago, and how successful it was. And Paige and her crew, they doubled down. Like this race was huge. This I. I believe uh, it's fair to say that this is the most successful event in Texas, uh, save for possibly the the Lone Star shootouts that Tommy Phillips used to put on. This is the most successful big dollar bracket race in the state of Texas in like two decades. And it's by, uh, uh, we made a big deal a year ago about Paige as, as I think the only, or one of the very few female promoters that we're aware of doing big things. And at this, but at this point, like, I think what Paige is doing transcends that. Like, I think that's too small a narrative to place on this. Paige Hamlin is establishing herself as one of the premier promoters in the country and everything that she does, I don't know how, how close you've got your finger on this. Like everything that she does impresses me. And this race, uh, the support of this is, is no surprise that well over 200 boxcars, nearly a hundred no boxcars. Lots of racing going on through the weekend, throughout the weekend at a premier um, facility down there in Texas. And it's good, especially given where I come from and my background, it's awesome to see true high level, big dollar bracket racing return to North Texas. And that's thanks to, to Paige Hamlin and her staff. Yeah, Luke, uh, you know, we, we harped on this last year at the end of this event and, and page kind of a being a trailblazer female promoter and 
admittedly, I, I work with Paige at our event. She's a, she's a big help for us as part of our staff at both events that we do in Bristol. And admittedly, some things kind of caught her by surprise. And, you know, first event, you've been there, you, you know how it works. And no matter how prepared you are, it just catches you in a, in a, puts you in a tough spot to try to adjust to certain things. Well, it looked like this year, uh, not only did she uh, adjust properly, she was way out in front of everything, just really had everything together very well. And uh, Mother Nature was kind to her and the place got packed. I mean, uh, you know, she, she had, um, 237 in the gamblers race luke uh you know you no offense texas okay uh it's probably too late for that because you you guys y'all are tough out there and you're, you're there's some egos and everything's bigger in texas even the hurt feelings um, you remember when i got on the texas no box crowd a few years ago yeah i still haven't heard the end of that yes yes i remember that well and quite honestly uh and and i watched i'm i'm you know, Facebook friends with the, the Chad Sandlins and Jake Howards and the, kind of the, the bell cows for the no box category out there. And they'll, they'll get on there and say, guys, where you at? Where you at? It's paying five grand. It's paying 2,500. You, you, you piss and moan about wanting great races. We give you great races. You don't show up. Well, they fixed that at the Red Racing Engines six shooter showdown. And that is largely due to Paige's promotion efforts the way she went out and found sponsors for all of these little things and continued to find ways to give back to the racers, not just in terms of what they earned on the racetrack, but just prizes, uh, a great facility at XRP, uh, an enjoyable atmosphere, a professionally run event with uh, staff that's familiar with big money bracket racing and how you go about doing it. Uh, by and large, this is the event in Texas right now, Luke, and that's, uh, that's not trying to um, overhype Paige and what she's done, but that's really cool to see no matter who's doing it, but to see a female go out again and, and accomplish what she's doing in a, what's always kind of been known as a man's world, just super proud of Paige. You know, she's She's humbled by the great support. Uh, I chatted with her a little bit through text and she's obviously very tired and, and run down, but she was able to communicate with me a little bit. And she, she really wants to thank the racers uh, for, for showing up in such big numbers. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what she expected or what anyone expected, but this has to at minimum exceed expectations a crowd this large you know, sending 350-ish entries down the racetrack's a big deal out there, big deal anywhere, really. She's, uh, again, humbled by the support. She thanked the racers. She thanks the great sponsors that made it happen. Uh, you know, of course, Michael Rudd and Rudd Racing Engines out of Ardmore, Oklahoma, and, and Mr. Wendell, which you're very familiar with, Wendell Dunaway, um, Wendell's Motorsports, big-time sponsorship and help. She appreciates that. And certainly everybody at Hamlin Motorsports uh, team, you know, she's got obviously her husband, her father-in-law and uh, Jake Hodge and many others around her. Um, uh, uh, Dylan doing the doing the um, announcing there, which I listened in a little bit, did a really good job as well. And 
just her whole team works hard and, and fights hard for the racers to have a great experience. And it looked like everyone enjoyed it. Best I could tell Luke. Yeah. On the track. Uh, I, I guess the, the biggest story starts with the biggest payout, right? The, uh, the $20,000 top bulb shootout saw young Tova Marshall, who just turned 18 years old a couple of weeks ago, Tova stages up and wins the biggest race of his young career, $20,000 windfall over Mike Bad Slow Bedo, who had a big weekend. Mike uh, didn't turn on the final win light, but not only was runner up in that $20,000 to win shootout, was also runner up in Saturday's $10,000 main event to none other than Big Jed, my partner. Mr. John Moggins not only won the $5,000 no box race on Saturday, the $5,000 main event, he then proceeded to fall into Super Pro and go a few more rounds to win the $10,000 Super Pro purse off the bottom over Mike Badslow Bado in the final. Yeah, John Moggins, obviously a friend of the podcast. I just had him on recently to, to talk about uh, years in his bottom bulb explosion. It's coming up really soon. This weekend. Um, it is this it, weekend. He went down to is. Texas, showed them all how to do it on the racetrack, and now we're going to try to show them how to do it behind the scenes. Yeah, you guys are going to do a great job. Hope uh, hope that goes well. But uh, Moggins, what can you say, man? I mean, gets the $5,000 no-box win, then steps out there and completes it as he rolls over into the box category and um, gets the $10,000 win there as well. I mean, pretty much a dream day for any racer, but certainly a guy coming out and doing it on the bottom bulb and, and collecting that payday over the top bulb racers uh, makes it a little bit extra special. And um, again, that was no fluke. Moggins is a bad, bad man on the bottom bulb. He put up some nasty Nick-like numbers there in pursuit to victory. I believe the stat that I saw was uh, Jonathan Moggins off the bottom, uh, eight consecutive rounds, no worse than 12 on the lamp. Yeah, that is nasty Nick style for sure. And uh, for those that don't hit the bottom, very difficult. I don't care if you got a trans break, a hand break, a foot break, or whatever you got kind of break. That is extremely difficult to lay down that many consecutive 12 or betters. But somehow I'm not surprised because that's how good Moggins is. Listen, I'm not doing that with the delay box. Forget <laughs> yeah, your break, likewise. Break. Give me a freaking photo cell. Likewise. Uh, Luke, they, uh, they had the, the, the bottom bulb shootout as well where Chad Sandlin got a $5,000 win there. Again, no surprise. Ooh. Chad Sandlin wins in Texas Ooh. or anywhere around Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might not have heard of him. Uh, he only wins about every 15 minutes out there, but big deal for, uh, for Chad again, uh, to compete on the big stage and get a big win. He got a $20,000 win that I got to see him get in Gulfport earlier this year. So off to a great start is Chad Sandlin. I got a riddle for you, big Jed. More bottom bulb win lights in 2022. Chad Sandlin, Lucas Walker. Uh, you talking about when the season's over or to date? No, to date. Oh, oh. Um, close, right? It's got to be one of those two. It's, it, I'm going to say it's Lucas because Lucas really started winning New Year's. You know, Good he point. traveled down to Florida. I think it's sheer uh, opportunity, not. Uh, not 
one more talented or more uh, successful than the other. But I would bet that number is really close, Luke. I wish I knew the answer because that would be cool. They did wrap up Sunday with a 2,500 to win no box main event and a $5,000 box main event where Jake Howard. Who? Hello. You might not have heard of him either. He only wins. Uh, Chad wins every 15 minutes. Uh, Jake wins every 16 minutes. Very good buds. Very good racers uh, indeed. And Jake Howard won the no box side (laughs) over Brian Day, which again, is a really talented bottom bulber out there and Morgan Semite in that uh, $2,500 uh, no box main loop. So he almost did it again, but, uh, but come up a little short there in the semis to Jake. Uh, Jake rolled over into the super pro category where he managed a runner up finish after winning the no box side, runnered up the 5k main event to Brent Lancaster as Brent made a dead on run. Jake was a little under. So uh, again, couple of guys few guys that get a lot of wind lights out there some new faces to the winner circle lots of great money lots of great prizes shootouts and just an all-around good time at the Rudd racing engines uh, six shooter showdown and again congratulations Paige Hamlin and certainly everybody that had a hand in making this event so good and that participated in it she's uh, humbled appreciative and honored to uh, to have promoted really the best race in Texas to date and possibly the best one it'll see all year. So uh, good uh, good vibes all the way around for, for everybody involved. No doubt. Biggest, like I said, biggest race in Texas in recent memory. So kudos to Paige and her staff. Uh, Big Jed, we've got a huge week on tap. We'll have lots to talk about next week on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, including Spring Fling Galat. The aforementioned bottom bulb explosion uh, coming to Mid-America Dragway in Arkansas City, Kansas. Obviously, we'll talk a good deal about that. We've got Class Racer Revival. That's a TiVo and Whitworth race coming to St. Louis this weekend. Plus, NHRA moves from Houston to Charlotte for the four wide nationals. So we'll have plenty of content on next week's episode. But I think, Big Jed, unless we miss something, I think that wraps us up for this week. Yeah, that does wrap us up, Luke. And uh, again, good luck to you guys at the Bottom Bulb Explosion. Uh, Certainly looking forward to the Class Racer Revival, the Four Wides in Charlotte, and Spring Fling a lot with the new double entry policy. Really interested to see how that works out. Um, Hashtag two-hour show next week. So if you're uh, getting ready to tune in to next week's show, Make sure that you you just kind of settle in, get some Cheez-Its and a and an ice cold Coke, and enjoy yourself because that one's going to be long. There's going to be a lot of winners to talk about, and it's going to be a really good show. But this one's done. It's in the books. Uh, if you enjoyed it, if you didn't enjoy it, if there was something we should have talked more of, less of, whatever you got to say, just tell us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing uh, Podcast Facebook page. You can put that out there for the public to see, or you can send us a private message and producer Mark will intercept that and run it in for a pick six touchdown and tell us all about it uh, through our Voxer. Oh man, we got Voxer. I love Voxer, by the way, Luke. I know it's not a time to talk about Voxer, but I love that you turned me and Mark on to Voxer and folks, you need to check this Voxer out. If you got a group you like to communicate with, they're not a sponsor, but they should be. It's awesome stuff. Free ads, forget, free ads. Yes, shout out to Voxer. I'll get the first shout out in, Luke. If, if you got some more shouts, here's a really good time for you to throw them out. 
Voxer is text group text on steroids. Yeah. So yeah. shouts in addition to the Voxer app. Shouts to Lemons. <laughs> Houston Lemons. <laughs> shouts to Jerry and Gary and Terry and Harry and Larry and Mary and Speedy and Landon. Lemons. Shouts to Chicken. That's all. Shouts to Chicken. Shouts to Brad Burton, your 2022 NHRA Stock Eliminator World Champion. Congratulations, Brad, on your third NHRA World Championship. No pressure. Uh, shouts to Jeff Taylor also. Uh, I crowned him the Division Four Competition Eliminator Champion. So congratulations to him as well. Hard to go wrong with JT. Shouts to Vince Hoda and Don Mazir and your top sportsman championship battle. But most of all, shouts to Themins. <laughs> love it great shout out list and uh congrats to all those champions you named too that's a you you guys might not even known you were going to win it but uh, now luke has given the statement made the statement and uh, given you your props so book enjoy the plane your championship. Tickets are, are we having a do we do we get a real banquet this year brad book your tickets now save money got to get a real banquet they, they're letting you they're not even making you wear a mask on a plane anymore oh uh, i COVID, agree i COVID's I over. Know. I don't know how NHRA is going to finagle their way out of spending the money to have a banquet this season. It's going to be tricky. <laughs> I you see what you did there. Never say never. I see what you did there. Yeah, they're, they're going to have to have a banquet. So no worries there. Uh, guys, if you like to tweet us, and uh, I, I definitely, you know, I'm a, I'm a Twitter guy, and I, I, I basically challenged folks uh, last week and – I want to give a shout out to Bobby Graham because Bobby Graham said, look, man, you, you said to, you Good said one. to tweet you and I tweeted you. So thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. Hashtag loyal listener there tuning in. Much, Shouts uh, to much our thing. one listener. And, and also the one listener that follows directions might be because he's the one listener. <laughs> could, could very well be. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, Luke and I would love to hear from you either on the Twitter or the, the Facebook page, but if you tweet, Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. A ton of racing coming up this week, and we're going to talk to you and can't wait to talk to you about it right here next week again. So until then, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon about more Sportsman Drag Racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. 
You can dream of that feeling all you want. Or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.